Most of us are not fond of taking tests or or taking exams, but they're an important part of our preparation for bigger things. To move up from one grade to the next, you've got to pass some exams, Uh, or at least it's supposed to be that way. Getting a driver's license means that you have to pass a written exam and a driving exam. I failed the first time. I bet most of you failed the first time. Maybe not. No, you didn't? Okay, I did. Uh, Becoming certified for a profession or a trade requires taking of tests. Meredith, who was just up here singing, is finishing med school and is going to do your residency in Newfoundland. Did I say that right? I never know if that's how you say it. Sure. Oh, Janice is giving me the seal of approval. And she's got to still pass a whole bunch of tests eventually, or we don't want her working on us. You know, you need these tests to show us how much we know or how much we don't know. They're an important part of our lives. They show us where we need to work harder, and we need to know that. Tests aren't only important, they're a regular part of our lives. Now, they're also a part of Lent. Lent is the fourth season in the Christian calendar. Christian year starts with Advent. It goes into Christmas, which is 12 days. It goes into Epiphany, which is an accordion period of time, depending on when Easter is. And it's followed by Lent, which is the season that we're in now. Uh, Lent began, began this past Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. But for some of us this morning, this practice of Lent is maybe a new thing. It's, it's not something you are familiar with. And you might ask, what is this thing called Lent? What, what does it mean? The, uh, the short answer is that Lent is a season of preparation. And we're preparing ourselves for the Easter event, for the celebration of the Easter event, when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Uh, should be a picture up there. There we go. Okay, I don't stand over here, right, Jerry? Gets too... Well, it gets very boomy over there. So I'll stand over here. I'll get away from that, that feedback. Uh, so for us as Christians, Lent is a season of preparation to celebrate Easter in the same way or a similar way that Advent is a season for us to prepare for the celebration of Christmas. It's a time of getting ready for something extremely important. Now, let's take a closer look at the, the word Lent, or the name Lent. It comes from an old English word, which means to Lenten, or lengthen. It, it places Lent in the season of spring. Lent happens as the days are getting longer. The German name for this season is, well, I'm not going to pronounce it, because some of you speak German here, and you'd be offended, so you can read it. It means a fasting period. Uh, The word for Lent in Norway, Poland, Russia, other European countries has the same meaning, a period of fasting. In France, Spain, uh, other European countries on on the south end of of Europe, it's based on the Latin word for 40th. It, It means... 40 days. So there's, there's three things that we learn about Lent very quickly. Number one, it happens in spring. Number two, it's a period of some kind of fasting, and it's 40 days long. Now, 40 is a, is a very common number in the Bible. You, you probably noticed that. Uh, time of Noah, rain for 40 days and, and 40 nights. Uh, the Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai. Elijah also visited Mount Sinai. He had a 40-day journey to get there. 
And Jesus, following his baptism, spent 40 days in the wilderness. 40 days. Now, why do we keep Lent for 40 days? Well, 40 days, how long is that? It's a wee bit more than a tenth of the year. It's actually 10.9% of the year. Now, as a Christian, whenever I hear 10%, what do I think of? Tithe. Exactly. I, I think of a tithe. Throughout history, Christians have practiced giving 10% of what we earn back to God. Now, we give to God through people. We give to a church. We give to an organization that serves the poor. We give to an organization that sends missionaries. But we're giving to God. Now, some would criticize this as an Old Testament sort of legalism. And, and they would ask, well, should we not all aim at great generosity? And I would say, certainly, we should aim at great generosity. But tithing is one of those tools that will help us get there. You see, a lot of us are trapped. We, we would like to give, but we know our bank account is close to zero or sometimes even negative, and we feel like we, we can't give. Well, the problem is we're bombarded constantly by a media, especially if you're on the Internet, that will tell you what you need and more perniciously will tell you what you deserve and will try in every way possible to provoke you to acquiring that thing. So we then get into this pattern of, of acquisition and accumulation and thus, we often don't have anything left over to give. Well, how do we resist that and move towards generosity? Tithing. And tithing, we're reminded that everything we have is not ours, it's God's. And God has given it to us for us to manage it. And determining to give 10% of our income as a bottom line and setting that aside first, make sure that we always have something to give. We're never short of something to give. Now, how are we going to avoid being short of the ability to pay the bills? We stop acquiring and accumulating. And when that little ad pops up when I'm doing a Google search for something and it says, you need this, I say, no, I don't. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Tithing helps us say no. Now, the practice of Lent is another form of tithing. Uh, the church has encouraged people to set aside 10% of our days in order that we might be more especially attentive to God with a special emphasis on three practices. There are three practices that the church has said you need to use these to be more attentive to God. Uh, they are fasting, they are prayer, and they are giving. In the old days, when some of us were young, we used to call that alms giving, the giving of alms to people, charity. Uh, those are the three pillars of Lent, the three activities that help us draw our attention to God, prayer, giving things up, fasting, and, and giving. But most of the time when people think of Lent, they think of, of giving things up. Uh, for most people, if they know anything at all about Lent, and when, when, when I was young, I think most people in our culture knew something about Lent. I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think people would have a clue what you were talking about. 
But, but for most people, if they know anything about Lent, they, they think of giving up. And we see that even in some of our cartoons. Uh, here's a cartoon that says, I'm giving up social media for Lent, said no Christian ever. Well, that's not true. I've known some university students who, who courageously gave up any and all forms of social media for 40 days during Lent. And they were happier for it, I guarantee you. Uh, this is who you don't want to be married to. This woman says, I couldn't figure out what to give up for Lent, so I gave up everything. So the poor husband is there staring at an empty refrigerator. Not good. Now, before we move on, let's be reminded that... I don't think I need to remind you of this, but I'll remind all of us anyway, because you might know somebody that you need to remind. Lent is not a time for giving up sin or sinful behavior. We're supposed to do that every day. That's 365 days out of the year. No, we give up a good thing, or at least a neutral thing, in order to be more attentive to God. So we give up things that might tend to fill up our time and make us less attentive to God. Now, what I, what I neglected to say earlier, that in the history of the church, Lent was initially a time of preparation for baptism. And they would baptize new candidates on Easter Sunday morning, which is, which is a great time to be baptized. In this picture, uh, you see one of the great theologians of, of the Christian church, a man from, from Africa, uh, being baptized, St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, as some people call him. He was baptized on Easter Sunday, 387 A.D., 1,630 years ago. And fortunately, we have this uh, image that was created as a relief sculpture, and we have a picture of it. What a, what a great time to be baptized, Easter Sunday. On Good Friday, we remember our Savior on a cross, dying and then dead. On Saturday, we remember our Savior lying in a grave, dead. On Sunday, we remember our Savior risen to life, as we see in, in, in the stained glass, you know, alive, conquering victorious. Now, how does that connect with baptism? Baptism visually depicts three spiritual realities. Being lowered into the water depicts our burial, our death and burial. When we become Christians, we die to an old self, and and we are buried. That, That old self is buried. And when you come out of the water, we're raised to new life in Christ. Baptism is, is a, a wonderful depiction of an invisible reality. We died, we're buried in Christ, and raised to new life in Christ. Now, uh, it gets us back to where we are today. In, in churches that follow the lectionary, and, and our church tends to, uh, sometimes with more vigor than other times, but we do, and, and uh, the, the gospel reading in the first Sunday of Lent, every year, remember the, the lectionary is a three-year cycle, so you, you read almost all of Scripture over a period of three years. But on the first Sunday of Lent, every Sunday, the gospel reading is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. It's that way this year, it's that way next year, it's that way. So if we follow the lectionary, every first Sunday of Lent, 
The gospel reading is the temptation of Jesus. We'd more accurate call it the testing of Jesus, because that's what the word literally means, the testing of Jesus. Uh, Now, the test took the form of temptation as Satan was deliberately tempting Jesus. So that's why we often call it the temptation, but it was a test. Now, this morning, we're looking at two biblical stories about testing or tests, because those are the two readings for today. The first reading, the Old Testament reading, is from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It's the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And the other story is Jesus in the wilderness. Those are the two stories. Those are the first of the three tests that I was alluding to in the sermon title. Now, Genesis 3 shows us the first test. Adam and Eve are living in a beautiful garden, and they're living in an intimate relationship with their creator. You know, creators, we need to remember this in our culture, I think. Creators have the right to make the rules. And they do. You create a game, you make the rules. There's no rules, there's no game. So creators make the rules. God gave Adam and Eve one very simple rule. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now their willingness and their ability to adhere to that simple rule is put to the test in the story in Genesis 3. Now, in Genesis 3, the one the Bible calls our adversary enters the picture in the form of a serpent and approaches Eve with a question. Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit of any tree in the garden? His aim is to plant a small doubt in her mind about God and about what God says. He still works that way today. So, and, and, and often he gets away with it. Be on your guard for the insinuation of doubts about God in your mind because I can guarantee you they're coming from the adversary. Now Eve at first holds her own and says, no, 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 he didn't say, no, he he said it's only only the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we're not allowed to eat. God said don't eat it or you'll die. And now the adversary boldly contradicts God saying you won't die goes on to say, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. You'll be like God. The test for Eve and then for Adam is quite simple. Will they believe God and obey him, or will they believe the serpent? How can it even be a contest? How could they choose the serpent over God? Well, with deadly consequence, they choose to listen to the serpent. They choose to disobey God. And having failed the test, they're expelled from the garden. Expelled, cast out. Now, Paul addresses this plainly in his letter to the church in Rome, Rome, Romans chapter 5, which is our our epistle reading for the day. We're not going to look at the whole epistle or the, the whole part of that letter. Uh, 
he goes, he says this in verse 18. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and life forever. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. That's the commentary of Paul on that story. Now, we struggle to understand how Adam and Eve could have failed such a simple test. They only had one rule. According to the Jews, as they broke down the Old Testament, they came up with over 600 rules. But when you look at what Jesus does is he begins to internalize righteousness. You can think, you know, I probably got a thousand rules I could break before noon on, on Monday. There's just, you know, all kinds of things pop up that we know are wrong. Like my regular road rage early in the morning driving downtown. That's wrong. How could, how could they not obey God? It's such a simple rule. And they have experienced God's goodness face to face. How could they fail the test? They should have trusted him. Now, speculation won't get us very far as to why they failed, and, and, and it's not really worth the effort, probably. The simple answer is the adversary is very clever and very good, and we must be on guard against him. Now, this adversary is not fully outlined in the Old Testament like he is in the New Testament. There are several references in the Old Testament to the Satan, as a proper name, S-A-T-A-N, and there's references to Lucifer, but it's only in the New Testament we begin to see this, this personality outlined. He's in the New Testament called Diabolu, the accuser, the slanderer. And Jesus says he's the father of lies. When he tells lies, he's speaking his native language. This, this person, the devil, which is our English translation of Diabolu, is, is a slanderer, a liar, an accuser. And that's how he operates. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, 8, that he goes around like a roaring lion looking for someone, you and me, that he might devour. There are two references in Revelation that would connect the devil of the New Testament with the serpent in the garden. They're both found in Revelation chapter 12, 9, chapter 20, verse 2. I'll just read 12, 9. The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So the book of Revelation wraps up into one person, the devil from the New Testament, Satan from the Old Testament, the serpent from Genesis chapter 3. The second test we see in Matthew, Matthew's gospel chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted and tested in the wilderness. After his baptism, the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he spent 40 days fasting. And that's where the temptation picks up. The serpent appears, as he did in the garden, not, not in the form of a serpent. We don't know what he looked like. This is just one artist depiction of what he might have been like, and it's more symbolic than literal. There are three parts to the test. First, the devil says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God... Turn these stones, or tell these stones to become loaves of bread. 
Tell these stones to become loaves of bread. There were a lot of stones. Jesus could have made a lot of bread, and he was very hungry. The text tells us after 40 days of not eating anything, he was famished. Now, if, that's a word Satan uses a lot. If you are the Son of God, he's not trying to get Jesus to doubt his identity as the Son of God. I think he's trying to slant it a different way. You're the Son of God. Why are you out here starving to death? You are the Son of God. All you have to do is tell these stones to be bread or steak or fresh spring asparagus smothered in butter, and it will happen. And lemon meringue pie. I mean, I think that's what he's trying to insinuate. You don't have to be starving, Jesus. You snap your fingers and you'll have all the food you want. Jesus rejects that. Certainly he has that power, but he will not use that power for himself. He says, no, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting the Old Testament, and he's saying there's a nourishment that is far more important and valuable than what we eat. Second part of the test, we find Jesus taken by the devil to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, at this point, the, the, the temple is built. You've been there, Frank, I think. The temple is built on the side of a valley, at the pinnacle, at the top of a, the peak of a, the top of a valley. So, we, I mean, that temple was destroyed by the Romans, but we know a bit of its dimensions. And at the highest pinnacle of the temple, overlooking that valley, it would be a 600-foot drop from that top to the bottom of the valley. And the devil says, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scripture says, now the devil's going to quote some scripture, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Now Jesus jumping and free-falling 600 feet, suddenly to be rescued by angels would be quite dramatic, wouldn't it? It would have captured the attention of the Israelites. And they would have said, this is one special man. This must be the Messiah. You see how Satan is beginning to work on Jesus and tempt him? For 40 days, we surmise, Jesus has been thinking about his job as the Messiah. For 40 days of fasting, he's been saying, Father, what do I do? How do I serve you? What's the plan? And now the devil says, here's a way to get it started. Make a big show. But what he's really trying to do is get Jesus to test the Father. He's tempting Jesus to put the Father to the test. The Father said he'll send angels to catch you. Try it out. See if God will do what he's promised. It's a risky test. But nevertheless, it's a test. And Jesus says, get away from here, Satan. Uh, no, you must not test the Lord your God, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. Then finally, the devil takes him to a high mountain and shows him, apparently in a vision, probably in a vision, all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, I will give you all these kingdoms right now if you will simply kneel and worship me. He's offering Jesus a shortcut. Jesus is going to be the king. 
We celebrate that on the last Sunday of every year before we start Advent. It's called Christ the King Sunday. Every, the, the last Sunday of every church year, we remind ourselves Jesus is king. He is king. The devil's offering him a shortcut to be king without rejection by the Jewish people, without suffering, without scourging, without beating, without crucifixion. And Jesus says, no. Scripture says you worship only the Lord your God. So that's the second test. The third test alluded to in the sermon title is our daily test. Your test, my test. Every day contains its own examinations. Every day we are tempted to believe something other than God and to obey someone other than God, often ourselves. Every day we're tempted to misuse what has been given to us, our power, our possessions, our things. Every day we're tempted to try to gain attention for ourselves or we're tempted to take shortcuts that aren't in part of God's plan. Every day we're tempted to do the easy thing and to avoid the hard thing. Every single day we're tested over and over and over again. Now the season of Lent can help us sharpen our discipline to face these tests that you will face, I will face, they're inevitable. In Lent, we put into practice the words of Jesus when he said to us, deny yourself. That's part of Lent. Take up your cross. That's part of Lent. Follow me. That's the intention of Lent. We give up things so that we can be more attentive to God by praying, by giving, by following Jesus. But this practice of denial is tricky. I'll, I'll, if you'll pardon me, I'll use my own life as an illustration of this. So, every year, I, I, and I've been trying to do this for 40 years, I give up something for Lent. What will I give up? And, and I finally decided to give up something for Lent that I didn't want to give up, and, and I thought, this will be a challenge. This will push me. So, I, I prepared for that on Shrove Tuesday, and, and I started on Ash Wednesday, and by Thursday night, I said to myself, this is way too easy. I'm not having a problem with this at all. What kind of a test is it that you can just ace it with your eyes closed? Not a good test. So I added two more things. So I added Meatless Friday. Now, I've never done that before, but that's an ancient tradition of the church. To give up the carne on the day that Christ died. Gave up his flesh for us. Well, I, I, I made it through one Friday, okay. Um, it, it, it was a little tougher, but, but, but I did okay. And now this is going to sound silly, and, and I'm almost embarrassed to, to, to talk about this but I'll do it anyway. Cookies. I am the, the original, the, the cookie monster on, on Sesame Street modeled after me. Wendy can bake a, 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 a batch of cookies in the evening, and the next morning she'll say, where'd those cookies go? 
and I stand with the cone of shame. <laughs> I love cookies. I have hardly met a, a cookie I didn't love. So I said, I'll, I'll give up cookies. That was Thursday night. Uh, Friday was okay. Saturday, Wendy and I went to the gym and, and got tired, <laughs> worn out. And, and, and I was waiting for her to come out of the locker room, and I'd say, I'm going to reward myself with a cup of coffee because the gym we go to has a very little lovely coffee shop there. So I went and had coffee. And what's on top of the counter? Gluten-free peanut butter cookies. Now, you know what that means? That means there's two ingredients, peanut butter and sugar. Does it get better than that? And I grabbed those cookies faster than Adam taking the fruit out of Eve's hand. I didn't even think about it. I just didn't even think about it. I grabbed those cookies, I sat down, I ate one. Now, I was righteous, and I said, I'm going to save one for Wendy. And as I was sitting there looking at that cookie, I thought, it's Lent. I gave up cookies for Lent. I just failed the test. And then she wouldn't eat the cookie. So I ate it, because I figured, <laughs> I've already failed. What, what, what if we fail? Because we, we do. What if we indulge in that good thing that we said we wouldn't indulge in? What if we forget to do that good thing that we said we would do? Do we quit? Do we give up? No, we stand up and go again. We don't quit. And we may fail a lot in Lent, but just the exercise of failing, admitting that we failed, saying we're sorry, and getting up and starting all over again is part of our being attentive to God, following Jesus, serving Him. So I invite you this first Sunday of Lent to give it a try. Take on the whole package. Give up some activity and, and replace it with prayer. Or reading your Bible. Uh, or being different about the way you read your Bible. I, I didn't add Bible reading this year, but, but I tried to tweak it and change it. So I'm reading just slightly different because I was going through a bunch of old junk, throwing it out, and I realized I used to read the Bible better than I'm reading it now. So, so just tweak things a little bit. Uh, give up spending money on, on something during Lent so you can give the money away. Let me, let me be really rude and, and, and lay some guilt trip on you if, or on myself. How much do you spend on coffee at your local coffee shop a week? You go and you buy a latte, $3, $4. Multiply that by a week, 12 to $15. Multiply that by six weeks of Lent, somewhere between $72 to $90. Agape Table would love to have that 75 to $90. Maybe there's a family you know that's really in a time of desperate struggle right now and in need. They might love it if you dropped off that $75 anonymously and put it in their mailbox. The idea is to give up something so you can replace it with something better. In all of this, our aim is to keep following Jesus. And when we do this, we're going to be under attack. There's going to be doubts. Are you stupid? There's going to be discouragements. Oh, you failed. Just give it up. But if we trust in God and lean on his strength and practice these 
ancient practices of Lent, we can grow and become better disciples. Lent is about following Jesus into the wilderness, a place of scarcity, a place of risk, a place of danger. It's about choosing a course that will draw us closer to God and facing the temptations that the adversary will throw in our face. We began the message by hearing a, a, a hymn that I asked the quartet to sing. Oh, Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. That's a Lenten promise. Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. Now, as we close this morning, we're going to sing a new song, new to us, and it's based on the story that Jesus... Uh, interesting, I'll just, I'm, I'm running out of time. But why, why do we know the story of Jesus in, in the wilderness? There was only one person there to witness it. The other stories, there were disciples there to see what was going on and tell the story. Jesus is the only one that could tell the story. And he somehow passed it along to his disciples who passed it along to us in the Gospels because we need to know this story about Jesus being tested in the wilderness. So we're going to sing about that. We're going to sing a verse that says, You lead us through the wilderness and give us grace for trials and tests. Your Holy Spirit shows the way and in our weakness teaches us to pray. Before we sing it, we're going to go back to the psalm, which is our psalm for today. We've broken the psalm up and we're going through the psalm through the whole service. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control.